you got a Bible, go to Mark chapter five. That's where we're gonna be. AJ, my guy's gonna come up and help me. Come on up, everybody give AJ a round of applause for helping me out. So sometimes it helps to visualize the point of the text that we're gonna look at, and I just realized I gotta move this. It's out of the strike zone. There you go, buddy, take that. When you see what you're about to see, go ahead, Jason, help me out, bud. All right, so here's the question. This helps us visualize what we're gonna think about today. When you see that, what do you immediately think of? A little bit further, boom, done, good. What do you think of? I, I didn't make out any of those words. I don't know what they were. Candy, you know what I think about? I think about the fact that pinatas were made to be destroyed, yes? All right, so AJ, no pressure, but the entire sermon now rests upon your ability to do this. Now, I'm gonna get out of the way, go ahead. Nice, go one more, one more. I like it, good job. Everybody give AJ a big round of applause. Good job, take some candy while you go. I thought you were gonna clean up more than that, AJ. So listen, some things were made to be destroyed, like not the stage. Some things were made to be destroyed, and now it's rolling. This is falling apart on me, guys. Hold on. Did it. All right. Some things were made to be destroyed. And as we look at Mark chapter five, we've been looking at the works of Jesus to understand the heart of God in the world expressed through the person of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And the thing that we're gonna see today is that Jesus has come into the world to bring destruction to one specific thing, to the works of the devil. They were made to be destroyed. Nothing about them is lasting, he doesn't delight in them, and he is aggressively uh, pursuing the destruction of the works of the devil in the world. So here's my agenda today as we look at the story. Uh, a couple things, if you're new to a biblical thought, one of the things you're gonna see today is that the biblical, biblical thought, biblical worldview is thoroughly supernatural. It's not a naturalistic worldview. What I mean by that is we believe that spiritual realities exist they're unseen, you can't test for them, you can't apply the scientific method to supernatural things, and yet a biblical worldview is a supernatural worldview. It believes that spiritual things are real. You are a real spiritual person. You possess a spirit, a soul, right? Therefore, we also believe that angels are real. God is real and he is spirit, right? We believe that demons then are real as God's enemies. And so that's one thing you're gonna be introduced to today if that's not a common thought for you. Uh, and that may be a place where you wrestle. I'll just invite you to go on the journey with us as we learn about how Jesus engages supernatural powers and principalities uh, that stand against him. For those of you who do believe and sort of have a supernatural worldview, one of the things I want you to recognize is a couple things today. I want you to see the power of Jesus over every, over every dark force over every dark power, I want you to learn that you don't have to be afraid, that you can take very seriously the work of the devil in the world and see it in all of its nuances and recognize it where it is, but not be afraid of it and walk in the power of Jesus in facing it. Does that make sense? That, that's my agenda today. Is, and I think that's the agenda of the text. It's never just my agenda, but what the text would bring to us, I think is an invitation to see the power of Jesus, the massive power of Jesus, and to take as a reality spiritual dark forces, demonic forces, understand that they're real, but also uh, the, the power of Jesus to confront them and battle them. And so we wanna learn to recognize those things and then go to war against them and to take great confidence that not unlike uh, busting up a pinata, when you go to war against dark spiritual forces, when Jesus comes to destroy them, good things happen, right? So 
Let's look at Mark chapter five. What we're gonna do is we're gonna move through the text as we've been doing. We've been learning through Mark that narrative is this really important genre of scripture. There's, if you're new to the Bible, again, it's one big story, but told over the course of thousands of years, and it unfolds in different ways in different genres of literature. So that there's poetry, and there's history, and then there's narrative stories that uh, narrate the life of Jesus and other aspects of narrative. There's also... Uh, prophecy and future you know, telling and all kinds of interesting things. And as we look at this one story about the redemption that God has brought into the world through his son, how human beings in rebellion against him are lost in their sin and need a rescuer and that he's sent that rescuer in the person of Jesus and that he has died on the cross and risen again so that we might have life and be freed from the work of the devil, free from death, free from sin, and that one day he'll, turn, he'll come again and he'll make all things new and restore his creation. It's one big story, the Bible is. And the reason God puts narrative as a part of telling that story is because he's inviting us to see that we're in the story. It's not just a list of bullet point commands to do this and don't do this and then do this. You might think of the Bible as a rule book if, you're, you know, if you've not become well acquainted with it. I recognize a lot of people have that view of the Bible. How many of you, when you were growing up, uh, that was kind of your view of the Bible, if you'd be willing to acknowledge it? Yeah, kind of rule book. Me too, I was like, I this seems to be about being a good moral person, you know, about, about a lot of do's and don'ts. And, and I was kind of a self-righteous person. I was a person that had a lot of confidence in my own ability to be good. And when you think that way, boy, you can, as Russ reminded us last, you can obey yourself straight to hell. Russ reminded us last week. And I could obey. I mean, I could obey with the best of them, right? I looked real good. And I was absolutely lost in my self-righteousness and pride and ego until God devastates you and rescues you from your own sense of your own goodness. That's some of us. Some of us uh, maybe are coming from a different place, but listen, we all need rescuing. (laughs) You need rescuing perhaps from your rebellious heart. You need rescuing from your pride, from your self-righteousness. And so as we enter into the narrative of God, as we look at these stories, part of what God is doing is he's inviting you to see yourself in the story. How would I react? How would I be if I were right here and to, to capture the heart of Jesus in a way that kind of only story can, in a way that no list of rules can. So anyway, let's look at Mark chapter five. We're gonna read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit as we've been doing to try and help ourselves enter into the story. And we're gonna draw some applications as we go. I'm not gonna save them all for the end today, okay? We're gonna have some applications kind of sprinkled throughout. All right, so Mark chapter five. Let's look at uh, the first couple verses now. First four verses in Mark chapter five, it says, they, and that's the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. That's another way of saying a demon. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Okay, so pause there. What I want you to see is when we get into these narratives, there's always a setup portion to the narrative. And that's how a good story goes, right? You you set up the narrative and that's exactly what Mark is doing here. And there's a couple things. And I think one main thing that he wants you to see in the way he's setting up this story, he's telling you that Jesus is going on the attack. That's the thing you've got to get above all things here. That Jesus is very intentionally going to a territory that is marked by the devil's work. He is taking the fight to the devil. If you want to think about it this way, it's an amphibious assault. 
He gets in a boat and he sails to the other side of the sea because he's taking the fight to the devil. He's not content to sit back and let the devil have any territory or ground. Now, how do we see that? A couple things. You know that the first thing we hear is that they, the disciples, they get into a boat and it says they sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes. Well, the first thing for a little history is that that is a Gentile region. So Jesus is leaving Israel, his own people who have a covenant with God and they have the law that's been given to them. They are to be a, a, a nation set on a hill, a light to the other nations to show what God is like. That's why he's given them a covenant with him through Abraham and then extended down through the tribes over the years, over the nations. And so a lot of Jesus' work is predominantly done in the land of Israel among his own people. But there are moments, this one in particular, where Jesus leaves the region of his own people and goes to where the nations are. He goes to where people who are far from God are. So the first thing you're supposed to see when you hear he's going to the region of the Gerasenes is why would he go there? That's the question you should ask first. And then it becomes clearer as Mark unfolds what's going on that this is a place where a lot of really dark spiritual things are taking place. So he lands and immediately he's met by a man who's been living among the tombs. He's been living in a place of death. Jesus, the God of life, comes in contact with a man who has been living in the place of death and no shackles can bind him. There's a strong work that's been taking place in this person. Whatever's going on, whatever the demonic work is it's, that is taking place in this man's life, the oppression upon him is massive. Do you see all those things in the text, yes? That's kind of the point, is that Jesus is on an attack, on an assault against a, a fortress of evil, if you will. It is an assault that he, that's taking place. He's going to the territory of the devil, to destroy the work of the devil. Now, let me pause there because I just said something that we need a little bit of broader theology around, kind of beginning to end biblical theology here. I just said he's going to the territory of the devil to undo the work of the devil. But if you're paying attention, you might go, but wait a minute, isn't God in charge of the whole world? Isn't God the God of the whole world? And this is one of those tensions that we have in scripture. We can say yes and amen to the fact that God is sovereignly in charge and sovereignly controls and rules over all the universe, all that he's created. And at the same time, we can recognize the Bible teaches that the devil for a temporary amount of time has a very real kind of authority that is very destructive in the lives of people and that has been granted to him for this period. If you remember, when, G when the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness, prior to Jesus' ministry, as part of the preparation for the ministry Jesus had come to do, he goes into the wilderness, led by the Spirit, and he's tempted by the devil. And if you remember, when the devil says, I'll, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth, right? Do, you, do we recall this, if you're familiar with the story? And what does the devil say? Because it has been granted to me or given to me this authority over these kingdoms in the world. Now, you can say, well, the devil's a liar. Maybe he's lying. I don't think, and most scholars don't think that's what's taking place there. He's actually has a real authority that he's offering to Jesus if Jesus will simply take the easy way out. If Jesus will simply bow down to him and not to God, avoid the cross, he can have the rule and reign that belongs to him. But Jesus wanted rule and reign in the way God prescribed him to have it. Amen? And so he denies the devil and he fights him with scripture. But 
there's this granted authority that the devil has underneath the providence and the sovereignty of God. So that, here's the way you should think of it, God rules and reigns in his providence and sovereignty, but underneath that sovereignty and providence, for a time, he has granted the devil to have a certain amount of authority that is very real and very destructive. Does that make sense? Fair enough. So that in the scriptures, we can find texts like these. So we'll just use two here to help us. Daniel chapter four, verse 34 and 35 we find these words, talking about God, it says, for his dominion, it's an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. In other words, it's not just for the future, it's now, right? And then he says, all the inhabitants of the earth, not just the ones who like him or worship him, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in terms of their authority over him, they don't have any. And he says, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a pretty strong statement about the sovereignty of God, yes? So Daniel can say that. Now you can go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Here's the tension. 1 John chapter 5, 19, John writes, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So do you see the tension there? That in a very real way, the Bible can say the devil has real authority. The whole world lies under and in his power, right? For John, basically, for John, the world is everyone who has not come to faith in Jesus. And he's saying there's this very real authority that exists in this sphere I'm calling the world and saying that the devil is reigning and ruling in, in a level of authority there. And yet God rules over all and has providence over all. Now, there's a thousand other questions that immediately come to your mind, yes? But for now, we're gonna leave it there. I know, very unsatisfying, all right? But for now, what I want you to see is the tension between those two realities. The Bible can speak both those ways, all right? Now, go back to the idea that this is being set up as a story as an attack on territory of darkness. And the thing that I want you to glean from that is this, is that Jesus, again, he didn't just decide to go for a pleasure cruise. He's not on a cruise ship, he's on a battleship. And he's not just going, you know... I, we kind of got in the boat and it just happened to, happened to kind of head this direction. The wind was blowing that way, so we went over there. He heads that direction on purpose because Jesus isn't content to let the work of the devil remain wherever it is. Wherever it's at work in your life, he's not content to let it remain. Wherever it's at work in your neighbor's life, he's not content to let it remain. His power may flow out against that and destroy it slower or in ways that we don't comprehend, but you need to see that Jesus is at work destroying the works of the devil. He is stealing the devil's stealing. He is killing the devil's killing. He is destroying the devil's destroying. He is at work against the evil one everywhere, all the time. And that's the first thing I want you to see. And I want you to take confidence in that because what it means is where that is at work in your life. Jesus is not content to let it remain. Isn't that good news? Like, oh, praise God. You know, I might love to see a different timeline or a different way it's brought to bear, but I can rest in the knowledge that Jesus would sail across the sea to attack the gates of hell, to attack the work of the evil one, and he will do the same in me. So I take great heart in that. All right, so that's the first thing is that this is an attack. And by the way, you get the notion as the story unfolds, I know we haven't gotten there yet, but at the end, the people are gonna react in such a way that they ask Jesus to leave. All right, sorry, spoiler alert, okay? They're gonna ask him to leave, which is really foolish, but they're gonna do it, and he leaves. 
Now, what's interesting to me about that is it tells me one of two things. Either Jesus is being merciful and saying, okay, I'll be gentle and you don't want me here and I'll go. But the text also never says that he went over there for any other reason. I think the text is leaving us with the impression that Jesus went over there just to do this. If he had some other agenda, I'd imagine he'd go, I know you want me to leave, but I've got some other reason I came over here and I'm gonna go do that thing and then you know, I'll go in peace sort of, sort of thing. He didn't do that. He does this work and then he leaves. And I don't think it's just because they're asking to. I think it's because he went just to do this. The thing we're about to see. It's pretty awesome to think that the son of God would cross the sea to you, a person who is outside the people of God and very much outside the purposes of God quite often in a lot of the way you're living your life, this man, and God would come and seek you out to destroy the work of the devil in your life. He didn't ask Jesus to come do it. He didn't seek him out, Jesus comes to him. All right, so the next part of the narrative then, I wanna focus in on verses five and six, just these two verses. So again, let's put our eyes in the text, and if you're new here with us, you're gonna hear that phrase, get your eyes in the text, get your eyes in the text. Uh, that's always what we wanna do. So verses five and six teach us about the work of the devil. So if, it's, if Jesus has come to destroy it, then we probably need to have a biblical view of what that work is, so that we don't have some, you know, some of us maybe watch too many scary movies, we have some idea about the work of the devil that's kind of superstitious and, oh man, can I just say, stop watching horror movies. Don't do it. I mean, ugh. I'll tell you why. I mean, I'll give you more in a minute, but it's just evil. It's just evil. All right, verses five and six, okay? So no one could subdue him. This guy is scary. He comes rushing up to Jesus and then it gives us this description of what was going on in this guy's life. Night and day among the tombs in this unclean place of death and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Why do you cry out? What makes you cry? You're in pain. Just those two words, you're, you and I are supposed to read that and not think, well, what did this guy do to invite this into his life? This guy's the, we're supposed to feel compassion. He's crying out in pain. He is constantly in pain because the work of the devil is wicked and seeks to destroy everyone made in the image of God. The devil does not like you. He's not interested in you. He will lie to you and deceive you with all kinds of false promises and all he's interested in is to hurt you and kill you, he hates you. He is crying out and he's cutting himself with stones. The Bible tells us that every human being is made in the image of God. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you, human being, are made in the image of God. You bear his image like nothing else in all the created world. You are the pinnacle of creation. You represent God and his nature and his ways more than anyone else. And that includes if you even deny that God exists, you still bear his image. It's a, it's a grace that he has placed upon you, a common grace, not a saving grace, but a common grace that we all possess, every single one of us. And the devil hates you because of it. He doesn't hate you because of your actions. He doesn't hate you because of your mind or your ways. You know why he hates you? He hates you because you represent the very image of God in the world and he hates God. He hates him so much and he wants to destroy everything that would display his goodness 
and his majesty and his splendor, and that is you. More than anything else in the world, you represent God more fully and more clearly than the most beautiful mountaintop, than the most beautiful day of sunshine, than the most gentle rain. You represent God more beautifully than the greenest field. You represent the very nature of God more than the most powerful tall building, more than the greatest army, more than any other thing in all the created world. You represent the nature of God. Is that astounding? Oh my goodness. Wrapped up in this frail little nothing package. The image of God in man and the devil hates it and he wants to destroy it. And that's what you need to see, the work of the devil is to destroy everything that glorifies God. Human beings first and foremost. So now let's just take a moment. If you grabbed sermon notes on the way in, I don't know how many were left after the first service. Um, if you grabbed some, I, I did a list and it's, it's cursory, it's not fully complete, but just a list of some places where in the scriptures we see the work of the devil. Because again, part of not being afraid of the work of the devil is not having some superstitious horror movie version of him in our minds, but letting the scriptures fully inform our understanding of who he is and what his work is. And I want you to see that every one of these works is a work God came to destroy. Some of them are very subtle, and you might not even think of them as works of the devil. And some of them are absolutely you know, big and, and sort of like grandiose in their aggressive nature. So let me just kind of walk through them. And again, we're not gonna do full service to these, but I'm just, I want you to hear them because it's maybe helpful to hear. In 1 Timothy 4.1, the devil promotes false teaching about God. He wants you to believe things that aren't true about God. In James 3.15, we find that the devil tries to create jealousy and selfish ambition in us. That's a little subtle one, isn't it? He just wants you to have that selfish ambition in you. That's a work of the devil. He delights to get you to think more about yourself and how you can raise yourself up and your own ambitions. And Jesus came to destroy that. Luke chapter eight, verse 12 tells us the devil snatches up the word of God when it's been shared with someone, when it lands on soil in their heart that may be hard soil, that the devil comes and he snatches that up so that over time it won't bear any fruit. John 8, 44, John is the most sort of aggressively blunt about the devil. John 8, 44, the devil's a liar and a murderer. I'll just call it like it is, John. Acts 13, 10, the devil opposes the sharing of the gospel. He hates it when you have the truth about God in the person of Jesus Christ and his cross and resurrection on your lips. He hates it and he opposes it. Ephesians 6, 11, the devil is always scheming Ephesians 6, 16 tells us the devil fires fiery darts of doubt and accusation at us so that we'd be heaped underneath shame and condemnation. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we're told the devil accuses us before in the presence of God himself. In 1 Timothy chapter three, verse six and seven, we're told the devil uses our pride as a snare to keep us from serving Jesus with impact, with effectiveness. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told the devil wants to devour us like a lion. In 1 John 3.10, we're told the devil tries to prevent us from loving each other. Can I just pause there for a moment and just, do you ever think about the fact if you don't love one another well that the devil's delighting in that? 
That's a, that's a work of his. He wants to keep you from loving the person sitting next to you. He wants to keep you from deferring to them, from counting their needs more important than your own, from loving, doing all the one another's the scripture talk about, that when you love someone, you do them. Revelation 12, nine says the devil tries to deceive us. 1 Corinthians seven, verse five says the devil tempts us, particularly in the sexual realm. 1 Timothy chapter five, verse 15 says the devil tempts us to idleness and gossip. You think about gossip as a work of the devil? Well, when you take up that gossip in your mouth, it is the tool of the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four says the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from perceiving how good the gospel is and how good Jesus is. In John 10, 10, I said John's the bluntest of them all. John 10, 10 says the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. Again, how much more plainly can you say it? So the reason to look at all those friends is because I want you to see some of those things. They're not big, scary, supernatural things. They're just very human things, yes? They're just very normal, day-to-day things, but you need to recognize that there is a, a, a delight and a workmanship of the devil operating in and through those things wherever he can, at every opportunity. And we are called to join God in the devil-destroying work that he's come to do. Destroy gossip. Destroy the destruction of image bearers. I mean, I love to think about the fact that he destroys the destroying. That's what Jesus does. He destroys the destroying work of the devil. We were just talking about the event that uh, Cindy was talking about is a great example of devil-destroying work. Fear is a work of the devil, yes? Other than the fear of the Lord, fear of man, fear of circumstances, fear of whatever else is from the enemy. It's not from the Lord. And that being the case, then this is a great example of an opportunity to get serious about like, man, I want you to destroy that work in my life and I wanna be a part of helping it be destroyed in the lives of others. So now here's what the other thing I want you to see because I want you to have some comments. I keep stepping on candy up here if you don't notice that. <clears throat> I didn't think that one through before we busted open some candy. I want you to see as well, there's something really beautiful here. Um, when this man comes up to, to Jesus, I don't think, here's what we're gonna find in verse six, just to cheat a little bit ahead. He's gonna say, well, what do you, what do you have to do with us? In other words, the, the demonic host is essentially like, we wanna get you as far away from us as we can. You and us, we, we don't need to be around each other. You leave us alone. That's kind of the idea. Basically, like, just leave us alone is what that phrase means. Then why would the man run up to Jesus. It's not the demonic that is wanting to run towards Jesus. The demonic wants to be left alone by Jesus. Their reaction would be to run the other way. So there's still something in this man, as much as we're gonna see there's this massive oppression in his life, there's still something in him that's able to recognize and run towards Jesus. And that is the image of God in him. It is not completely destroyed. It's fractured, yes. But just like all of us by sin, our image-bearing nature is fractured, but it's not gone. There's still something good in all human beings that that Jesus uses and gives as a gift that serves as a a type of protection so that the enemy doesn't just rule completely, yes? It's a beautiful, beautiful gift of common grace and that's what's bringing this man to the feet of Jesus. He runs to the feet of Jesus and falls down there. That's gonna be a theme we're gonna see in Mark, by the way. We'll see it again next week. People just running to Jesus and falling down at his feet. It's falling down, I need you, I'm desperate for you. And here's a man who's desperate for the work of God. Now, 
Those of you who are in Christ Jesus, so if you're not in Christ, there's this image-bearing nature that, that provides a protection to you. I want you to see that because lest you think God has nothing to do with me or hasn't given me anything, he's given you a gift you never asked for and it's protecting you in a way you don't even know is protecting you. Isn't that amazing? Man, my prayer would be that you recognize that and turn and say, thank you, God, and that it would then bring you, help bring you to the feet of Jesus. That you would see he's already at work for you in a way perhaps you haven't recognized and been thankful for. Now, those of you who are in Christ, who are followers of Christ, you don't just possess the image of God. You're not just image bearers. You now are indwelt by God himself, the spirit of God. So the demonic cannot take up residence in you. They cannot take hold of you. They have no hope against you. If you don't give them territory and room to operate in, they can do nothing which is why James chapter four, verse seven can say it this simply, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you see that when James is saying that he's not giving you a 12-step program that you need to resist the work of the devil? He's not going, boy, you better have this extra super spiritual knowledge or else, man, you're gonna be in trouble or you better have all this nuanced information or you better have all these tactics. He's literally saying, whatever temptation the devil brings against you, resist it. Say no, and he will flee, all right? Seriously, as simple as like, when my dog does something wrong, and I look at the dog and I say, no, and the dog goes, okay, right? You don't have to be afraid. The spirit of God in you is stronger than the power of the devil. He has destroyed your sin and shame so that you're not under it anymore, so he cannot bring condemnation to you. He can't lie to you about that when your mind is saturated with the truth that you've been set free from that condemnation and you've been called now a child of God. You are no longer what you were, you're a new creation. When all these things, all these realities which are true and real and yes, in Christ Jesus, have taken hold of you, do you see how the devil has no hope? So don't play around. When I say like don't watch horror movies, don't give yourself to the things of the devil. Don't delight in the things of the devil. When you see the destruction of image bearers and gross images like that, don't go, yay, this is entertainment. No, it's, it's wicked. Just get rid of it. Why would we delight in what the Lord doesn't delight in? Don't do that. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'm very thankful for the bluntness of that and the simplicity of that. Resist him, and he will run away. All right, now let's turn to the next section of the story. So we've seen what the work of the devil looks like. We've seen um, how Jesus is on the attack, I and mean, that's how the narrative is set up. Now, follow me into the next section, because I call this section the, the fight that isn't really a fight section. It's kind of a, you're, you're ramped up for this, like, oh, here we go. Jesus is storming the gates. It's gonna get, like, it's gonna get biblical, all right? It's gonna get big. And then it's just like, and it's over. So follow along. Let's look at verses seven through 13, okay? Here's what we find. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you or I beg you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. All right, that's a crazy story, yeah? So here's what's going on. Let's just follow it through. As the story continues, we come to the heart of the confrontation. And that first phrase I already said, what have you to do with me, is the, is the demonic's way of saying, like, just leave us alone. Just, if you could just go away, if you could just kind of leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. This is our territory. We'll stay over here. That's your territory. You stay over there. And Jesus is not content to do that. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm storming your territory and I'm taking it. And then they switch tactics. So if it's the man who rushes up to the feet of Jesus, and I believe it is, in his, what's left of his kind of sane mind, then the demonic shows itself when it says, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, when you read that, you might think, oh, that seems like they're acknowledging who Jesus is. But that's actually not what's taking place. In the ancient world, it was widely thought that to name something was to be able to exercise authority over it. All right, so when the, when the demons come up and they say, we know who you are. You're the son of the most high God. We're naming you. That's not them submitting to him. That's them making some kind of weak, pathetic effort to try to have authority over him, all right? And Jesus' response, you're gonna notice the contrast, is that Jesus is gonna be commanding them to come out, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute, and then he's gonna say, I'm not gonna just name you. I'm gonna make you tell me your name. What's your name and what do they have to do? He silences them when they try to have authority over him and then he makes the demons say, tell them his name as if to say, you're not in charge, I am in charge. Do you see that? So that's what's taking place there when he says Jesus, son of the most high God. Look, it's, a, it's not the best metaphor or best illustration of this, but this idea of having authority over something that you name, just like parents and kids, right? Now, there's nothing demonic in that, <laughs> all right? but a parent has authority over a child and therefore names that child. Says, this is, this is your name. And you know, the beauty of that is it's done in love and it's done in graciousness and a child then receives that name and, and hopefully delights in the name that they're given. Right, parents, I mean, how long do you think about thinking about the name of your child? Like, I, I don't know too many parents that just were like, I don't know, we'll just go with whatever. Right, there's like an intentionality because you recognize there's this authority that you have and you want to give them a name that's, meaningful and that whether it's a family name or it's a name that means something specific and what it says, right? We thought about that with all of our kids. My son is named Deacon. It means servants because we have an aspiration that he would be a servant. It's our desire that he would be one who serves. Kinley means from the king's land because we want her to know she belongs to the Lord. She is his. Emerson means brave because we want her to know that in the, in the work of God and her heart and her life, she can be brave. She can go forward in boldness. Those names weren't just something we, you know, just pulled out of a hat one day. Now, let's move the story forward. Here's the, the, just the great irony. I want you to see the irony of this. All right, so the attempt to have authority over Jesus has failed. He tries to name him, doesn't work. And immediately he says, I'm begging you, don't torment me. Right, did you catch that? Now, what is the irony of that request? They're appealing to the mercy of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, not to harm them or torment them. Why? So they can keep tormenting this guy. 
I hate the devil so much. There is nothing good in him. Do you see the wickedness that they would say, don't torment us so we can keep tormenting him? That's what we want to do. It's evil upon evil. That's what they're asking for, and Jesus is having none of it. Now, it says, they said, don't torment us because Jesus was saying to them, come out of him, which begs a question, and we, so we need to do a little, a little nuance here. It begs the question, well, if Jesus had already been saying, come out, why didn't they come out? I mean, throughout Mark, one of the things we see is this word immediately, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. We saw it in this story, Jesus gets out of the boat, and immediately, right, that's how Mark drives the action. It's also, again and again, when Jesus heals someone, it says he said it, and immediately it happened, right? And the reason for that, and we've already seen him actually driving out demons in other places in this gospel, earlier in the story, we didn't look at those stories, but they're there. And he says he commanded the demons to come out, and immediately they come out. So we have to ask the question, is this, why is this not happening immediately? That's one of Mark's favorite words. Like, why is this a particularly powerful, you know, demonic force? Is there something lacking in the authority of Jesus? And I want you to understand when this happens in the gospels, there's a reason for it. And it's really twofold. It's not a lack of authority on Jesus' part. There's two things taking place. Jesus, when he, there's times where Jesus works a healing miracle in someone's life and he does it in two parts. That happens a couple times. And you might think, well, gosh, why didn't he just, I mean, other times he says, I'm gonna take away your blindness and the blindness is gone. I'm gonna make you hear and, and all of a sudden you can hear. And then there's times where he goes, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and the vision's not quite there and then I'm gonna come do a little bit more and then now it's fully restored. Have you ever wondered why? Well, so no one wondered why. Okay, we'll just move on. Just kidding. I think there's two reasons, in particular in this story. I'm not gonna say in every time where this happens, but I think there's two things in this story where he's saying, number one, he's letting us have the full version of the conversation because he wants us to see it so that we know how to attack the works of the devil and we know how empty and weak they are against him. So he's, he's letting the full thing play out rather than force the demons to come out immediately. He, he, he's commanding them, but allowing them in a way for a moment so the conversation can come to its completion. Does that make sense? So that we then have the full story recorded. So I think that's part of it. Here's the other thing I think. I think he wants you and I to understand how serious the work of the devil is. Not that he lacks authority over it, but he doesn't want us to treat it as if it's nothing because there's gonna be a greater work that Jesus is going to do in order to absolutely, ultimately destroy the work of the devil. What is that work? It's the work of the cross. And I think that he's saying, come out, but allowing there to be a, a way in which in the moment doesn't immediately come out because he wants you and I to see that in this man's life right now, he's doing this work and he's gonna deliver him, but there's gonna be an even greater work that he's gonna need to do in order to destroy the work of the devil. And it's the work of the cross. And that is no light thing. That is no small thing. That is what the price was to free you from the work of the devil to release you from the, from the destructive work that he brings to bear in your life, his eye-blinding work of you, of me. The cross, he's pointing us to the cross. I really believe that here. He's saying this is what it will ultimately take to bring about the destruction of the devil. He's taking us forward in the story in a way. In that. Now, here's what happens next. Jesus then turns around, as I said, and he says, all right, I'm, you're trying to name me I'm gonna make you tell me your name. And so he says, we are legion for we are many. Now, a legion is a Roman military term. It's anywhere between four and 6,000 soldiers. Now, that doesn't mean there's 6,000 demons oppressing this guy, inhabiting this guy. 
uh, spirit, but what it does mean is that there's a great number. I don't want you to get caught on exactly 6,000, but certainly it's, we're meant to see that this is a massive, oppressive host. When you f- see that, in fact, I've got a picture of this. This is what six, a crowd of 6,000 looks like. That's a crowd of 6,000. I don't know who that band is, okay, so don't ask me. I literally Googled crowd of 6,000 people. That's what I did. So that's a crowd of 6,000 people. Now, there should be two things. When you see that and just visualize it, and leave, leave that up for a second. When you visualize that, I want you to think two things. This is what this man was dealing with. Can you imagine that? If my heart does, feels anything other than compassion, there's something wrong with me. We should feel deep compassion. Did you know that Jesus never asked, well, how'd you get yourself into this predicament? What did you do to open yourself up to the work of the devil? He never seems to even care about that. He just goes towards this man and says, I'm not gonna allow the devil-destroying work in your life to continue. Now, I want you to know, here's the other thing we're supposed to see. I want you to imagine standing on that stage, and I told you, you gotta fight your way through that crowd, and they're all aggressively gonna try to hurt you. How well do you think you'd do? That crowd is against you. It's one against 6,000. Good luck. But in this story, it's one against 6,000, and it's no contest, but in the other direction. That's the point. We're meant to go, this has no chance against the one because he's the one. It's amazing, right? The same situation that to you and I would be like, oh, (laughs) I'm gonna die. That's what's gonna happen. Jesus and they know. They have no chance. All right, now let's turn to the people's response. The time we have left here, uh, I just wanna highlight the people's response because there's some oddities here, but it's helpful for us and instructive in terms of how we would respond. And then we're gonna sing and turn to the work of the Lord that he gives us to do for the rest of the day. So verse 14, the herdsmen fled. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one that had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind and all the people celebrated because they were so happy. And they were afraid. And they were afraid. Now, look, let's give some credit. That's a pretty normal human reaction because what's happened is they've had this legion operating in their territory and in a scary way. They couldn't bind it with chains, ran roughshod, but in some way kind of left them alone, stayed in the tombs, stayed on the mountains, and now there's a greater power in their territory. There's someone stronger than the demonic and they don't know what to do with it. And their response is to say, Please, 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 you leave us alone too. Rather than to see that this one who is more powerful than the legion is here for their good, not for their destruction, but they don't see it and they're afraid. And they ask him, follow the story. And those who had seen, seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone, what? Marveled. Most theologians think this is the first missionary to the Gentiles. The work of Jesus is predominantly in Israel during his life. There's a little bit outside of it, this being one of those episodes, but for the most part, he operates within Israel with his disciples, and then when he dies and rises again, and then before he sends into heaven, he gives them the great commission. He says, go, what, to every nation and to all the nations. Make disciples of people from every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. And I'm with you. So this mission to the nations is beginning here but not with a disciple that Jesus goes, all right, Peter, I'm leaving you here. Go, you know, go into this territory, go into this region. He's foreshadowing his mission to the ends of the earth, but he's using this man. What a mercy, what power that he had had the destructive work of the devil at work in his life, and now he becomes the first one God chooses and says, now you, stay right where I placed you, right where your home is, and tell everybody what I've done for you. What a great picture of evangelism. Just tell people what God's done. Tell them how great his mercy is. He's changed you, he's renewed you, he's set you at peace, he's freed you from shame. Just talk about that. Talk about what he's done and God will take that seed and he'll cause people to marvel who have soft hearts and, and have hearts to hear it, who have ears to hear it. So just talk about and marvel at the work that he's done. It's an amazing thing to think how he uses this man. So friends, as we think about the work of the devil, I want you to know that Jesus has come to destroy every shred of it, every last bit of it. He wants none of it to remain. So don't join the devil in his work. Don't delight in his work, but have great confidence and do not be afraid. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have every confidence of that because our King Jesus has gone to the cross and shed his blood so that you'd be freed from sin, freed from death. You only need respond in faith. No work of your own only saying to him, I believe, and the work of the devil is shattered. And then walk in the power of the spirit and of the freedom that God brings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love how strong you are. We love how loving you are, how compassionate you are. You're amazing. That's really what this boils down to. We're amazed by you and your power and your work and your goodness and that you would use that on our behalf. We had no hope, but in you we have every hope. We thank you and we love you and we just wanna respond in praise to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand and praise King Jesus together.